Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. On the 28th of December 2015, Japan and South Korea reached what they hope will be an agreement that will settle an issue that has long divided the two neighbours, that of the comfort women. Japan paid a billion yen to Korea, the amount that had been requested, and in the text of the agreement, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, and I'm quoting here, expresses anew his most sincere apologies and remorse to all the women who underwent immeasurable and painful experiences and suffered incurable physical and psychological wounds as comfort women. Japan and Korea, two large, prosperous democracies and allies of the United States, have had remarkably poor relations since the end of World War II. At the heart of these difficulties have been the experiences of so-called comfort women. The agreement reached at the end of 2015 reflects efforts by both sides to cauterise the issue. But the agreement has its critics, with right-wing denialists, including senior figures in the LDP and business figures with close ties to the Japanese Prime Minister, continuing to fulminate, while supporters groups in Korea feel the agreement doesn't go far enough to address the deep-seated wrongs that the comfort women have experienced. But just who are or were the comfort women? And why is the issue so controversial 70 years after the Second World War? And what steps can be taken to provide a sense of justice to the victims of these kinds of acts? Joining us on today's podcast to discuss these issues is Dr Nicola Henry, a senior lecturer in crime, justice and legal studies here at La Trobe, and a recipient of a La Trobe Asia grant to research this field. Welcome to the podcast, Nicola. Thank you, Nick. Why don't we start with some background? Well, who are comfort women and why is this euphemism being used to describe this group of people? The comfort woman refers to between 50,000 and 200,000 women who were coerced, forced, kidnapped and otherwise recruited into military sexual enslavement or what's also known as enforced prostitution. That occurred during the Asia-Pacific War between 1931 and 1945. The comfort stations were run by private operators and also supervised and maintained and also run by the Japanese military. And I think that places like Australia and elsewhere, we tend to think of World War II in the Pacific as 41 to 45, or sort of 4 or 5, maybe 39. But actually, this goes back right to the start of the 30s. That's right. And one of the first comfort stations was set up in Shanghai in 1932. And part of the rationale for setting up the comfort stations was in order to prevent the mass rapes that had previously occurred during the invasion of Nanjing in 1937 to try and boost soldier or military morale and also to placate the local population. So that was part of the rationale and I guess the euphemism then kind of stems from that as a way to kind of present these stations as as being somewhere for comfort and, and pleasure for military men. An active concession, I guess, on behalf of the Imperial Japanese military to say these guys are going to misbehave let's focus where they misbehave in a particular area. But then to do that, you've got to have these people. Absolutely. It's an extremely chilling example of an attempt to turn something that's horrific for the victims involved into something that's acceptable to local populations, that's couched as as a comfort station. The victims are are represented as prostitutes or sex workers. The language that's used, the euphemism of comfort women, helps to make this into something that's accepted by local populations and also by military men. So it's extremely chilling and I think just kind of an added layer to that is that 
most of the victims of sexual enslavement in the comfort stations were from countries that Japan regarded as kind of lesser countries. So, for instance, South Korea, China, Taiwan, Vietnam. You know, there's definitely a hierarchy there. There's an intersection between class, between national identity, and also gender and race. When the Japanese decided to sort of model themselves on European politics and society in the late 19th century, they adopted a whole range of pretty unpleasant aspects, one of which this notion of racial hierarchies and and that there are people at the top of the pyramid. Europeans tended to think we were at the top of one pyramid and they saw themselves as similarly positioned at the apex and all these lesser people were lesser in, in a whole range of ways and one of which is you could just take these people and treat them in a way that you wouldn't treat your own population. When the Second World War came to an end, there were a range of efforts across the board to try to right the wrongs of the war, certainly from the victor's point of view at any rate. So what occurred originally to try to redress the experiences of these women? Okay, so in October 1945, there was a United Nations War Crimes Commission that conducted investigations in Asia-Pacific in order to identify war criminals, to gather evidence regarding war crimes in the region. Interestingly, the commission had a hierarchy of crimes, so listed at number five was rape, and listed at number six was the enforced prostitution Um, or kidnapping of of local populations into forced prostitution. So the commission did, at the time, rank very highly both rape and enforced prostitution as harmful and egregious. There was a lot of evidence that was gathered by allied investigators. However, with the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, unfortunately, the crimes against the comfort women was all but ignored. Mm. The fixation was heavily on the crimes against the peace charge, so that's waging an aggressive war. Mm. And so what that meant is that the prosecutors were less concerned about some of the crimes that had occurred against civilian populations. And that was particularly in regards to civilian populations of countries that weren't represented at the Tokyo War Crimes Trial. So there were mentions throughout the proceedings of the mass rapes against the Chinese population in Nanjing in 1937. And in fact, rape was included in the indictment of the Tokyo War Crimes Trial. And a couple of people were prosecuted for rape crimes along with the crimes against the peace charge. So that's kind of stands in contrast to the failure of the Tokyo War Crimes Trial to prosecute sexual enslavement or enforced prostitution. Really, we're getting back to this hierarchy, this Mm. racial hierarchy, where victims of these particular harms weren't um, recognised. They certainly didn't appear as witnesses. There were a couple of affidavits that were given by victims, and one in particular was a Dutch woman who spoke about the involvement of the Japanese military and the comfort stations, but as I said, there was no indictment for those crimes and there was no prosecutions of any individuals for those crimes. So we go forward in the early 1960s, there was an agreement struck between Japan and Korea, kind of about the war in total, significant amount of reparations paid and a general kind of statement of remorse and guilt in general, and that had subsumed within it the comfort women issued. Was that the sort of end of it? I think that the 1965 Treaty of Peace at San Francisco is an interesting example of, I guess, some of the historical contestation around the comfort women issue, but also the how it's kind of expressed in contemporary context. That treaty was a kind of a closure treaty. Korea 
made promises that they wouldn't pursue compensation after that treaty was signed. So it does kind of, you know, mark this turning point. But also in 1951, uh, Japan agreed to accept the Tokyo Tribunal which is really interesting because later critics have have argued that the Tokyo trial was a a form of victor's justice, that it was unfair, that it was racist, it was biased. So you've got all these interesting kind of historical moments that influence the way in which the comfort women debate is rolled out in contemporary context. And certainly the 1965 treaty is an interesting example, but also the 1951 promise to accept the terms of the Tokyo trial. And so what you're finding there is because the Tokyo Tribunal didn't prosecute individuals for the crimes against the comfort women, that has been used as a way of saying, well, we've accepted the terms of the Tokyo trial. The Tokyo trial didn't prosecute the crimes against comfort women. This issue has been dealt with. That's essentially it, isn't it, in terms of the sort of formal attempts to provide redress or some sort of sense of justice towards the victims of of this, really up until the end of last year. That's right, and I think the other factor to consider is the denial of Japanese war responsibility stems from post-Second World War, as I mentioned, the victor's justice charge, but also General MacArthur's attempt to uh, gain Japanese um, stabilisation, stabilisation of post-war Japan, and also to kind of fight against communism. Mm. So you've got those kind of historical factors that are playing out in that context too, where you've got a period of time, at least until the 1980s, 1990s, where generally speaking, Japan was very much in denial in relation to war responsibility, and also representing itself as a victim of the Tokyo war crimes trial, but also of the fire bombings of Tokyo, also the atomic bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So you've got all those kind of factors that are playing out here. And I think it just really points to the contested and controversial and complicated situation of the comfort woman throughout history. Yeah, and you had that sense, I think, I mean, not only did the geopolitics come in and sort of say, well, you know, we've got this bigger game going on and we've, we've got to get on with the Japanese because they're our allies against the communists that have just invaded half of the Korean Peninsula and they're, they've just taken China. And as the Cold War comes to East Asia, the notion of the allies just saying, well, these things are difficult, but look, we've just got to get on with it. The other thing, and we've talked about this in a previous podcast about Japan, was also this sense of denialism about responsibility. And there's a narrative in Japan that is not only we were victims of attacks and the atomic bombings being the most obvious, but also the sense that the Japanese people were a victim of this military clique. You know, we were duped into this thing. We were sucked along. We had no, you know, real culpability in this. And we were gulled by a small group of, of thugs, essentially. Not only do you get this playing out and making difficult relationships with China, with Korea, but this group of people who suffered horrifically just get completely shunted out of the picture. Let's move to the agreement of 28th of December. So Japan and Korea, and again, it's the geopolitics for a lot of people. This is an agreement which is principally being reached because of China. If China was not behaving the way it was, the Korean president and the Japanese prime minister who don't get along for a whole bunch of reasons would not have reached this accord. So what's your sense of the agreement? Do you feel that the geopolitical sentiment that seems to be driving it colours it the governments, both sides, have tried to say it. I think the, the official word is this is going to irreversibly resolve the issue. I, Do you buy that? Again, it's so complicated. The demands that have been placed on Japan by survivor 
activists and their advocates has been very much around getting a proper apology that acknowledges the involvement of the Japanese military and political leaders. So that's one aspect and I guess you can frame that as a kind of recognition of not just the harms that occurred against the comfort woman but also the role of the state. Mm. But then on the other hand there have been calls for a very long time for compensation and so now you've got the situation where Japan's offering a billion yen, I believe, and a deeper apology, a less ambiguous apology. I haven't seen a mention of to what extent will they refer to the involvement of the Japanese military or the Japanese state, but I imagine that that's going to be a source of contention. Mm. There's also been promises on behalf of South Korea to look into possibly removing the statue outside the Japanese embassy in Seoul that's been there since 2011 that is a memorial to comfort women and also the promise to say okay we're done and dusted here this is the end of it we'll settle this once and for all and I think what's problematic about that is where is the voice of the victim survivor there's 46 surviving comfort women in South Korea at the moment there's not very many they weren't brought to the table. They haven't been included as part of the negotiations and that's been heavily criticised by Amnesty International, for instance, and the Korean Council that's working on behalf of surviving comfort women. So that question is a really important one. I mean, it is for diplomatic relations between Japan and South Korea, but it's misguided to a certain extent because really it should be kind of looking to what do these surviving comfort women actually want. Yeah, and it, it, it seems fundamentally a diplomatic deal it's about we've got this roadblock in our relationship between japan and south korea it's called the comfort women how do we deal with it our diplomats talk to your diplomats we reach a deal the pm and the president get together and agree and off we go the deeper sense of justice and the sense of engaging with the victims and responding to those needs is just not part of the equation Mm -hmm. it was about a diplomatic deal to then But there's other challenges that you've got, I think, not only very rightly pointing out the problems around absence of the victims' voices and participation, but you've also got this ongoing denialism in Japan. They weren't slaves. They consented to this. And that's likely to continue. Do you see any ways in which that point can be responded to? It must add salt to the wounds for the comfort women to have their stories and their experiences denied in the way that they have been. I think it points to the power of language. We spoke earlier about the euphemism of comfort women, which is highly insulting to many surviving comfort women, although they continue to use that term because it's the term Mm. that has been catchy, that it's understandable to media and academics and the population at large. The euphemism is really at the heart of the controversy and the denialism because, as you say, denialists argue that there's no evidence to prove that these women were coerced or forced and kidnapped into sexual slavery and that they were willing sex workers, basically. And then you have, on the other hand, the human rights activists who argue that these women were uniformly victims of sexual enslavement. And then you have some people in the middle, for instance, there's a post-colonial scholar from the US who argues that the extreme narratives between comfort women as sex slaves compared to comfort women as sex workers, that there was a lot of in between. There were women who, from very poor families from South Korea, who knew that they were going to work in this particular field. And she has argued those polarising narratives do something terrible to women whose experiences were somewhere in between. Mm. 
She also argues that there does need to be more attention placed on the intersection of patriarchy, colonialism and racism that was prevalent in Korea at the time, that these women were kidnapped or recruited or whatever ways they were somehow found themselves in these particular brothels. Yeah, I just think it's not likely to go away, even though there's plenty of evidence from women who've told their stories about what happened to them, that there does continue to be this denialism. And I think that must be a really horrible thing that they have to go through and that they have to go to their graves with. And no amount of moving of little statues around embassies or, I mean, a billion yen sounds like a lot of money, but in the scheme of national coffers, it's a drop in the bucket. This issue is, I think, going to continue to bedevil both the personal lives of the survivors, but also, I think, the relationship between the two, particularly when you've got people very close to the current Japanese Prime Minister openly saying this didn't happen the way they said it did. I'm afraid that's all the time we've got. Thank you so much, Nicola, for being part of the program. You can follow Nicola Henry on Twitter at N underscore Henry or me at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review to help us spread the word. Thanks for listening.